A few years ago, I tried something new. I signed up for a creative writing class and showed up to this local bookstore one evening in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. It was closed, but was being kept as a space for eight consecutive nights, 7 to 9 p.m., where our teacher and six students would be gathered to practice writing. We, we had a pen in hand, a notebook in hand. We, we sat down in this circle that had been created for us. And our teacher, Valley, she says, here's the format. I'm going to provide a very open-ended prompt, something like, right now I am, or I remember. And then in light of that prompt, I want you to just start writing. Don't, don't pick up your pen, just keep writing. Write whatever comes to you. At the end of 10 minutes, we will read aloud to the rest of the group whatever's there. We'll do that three times between 7 and 9 p.m. We're six strangers, seven if you include our teacher, Valley. And aside from Valley, nobody is a professional writer, semi-professional writer, even really aspiring writer. You can imagine all of the fears and anxieties going through me. I imagine the rest of the group read this aloud no matter what. Valley, having done this before, surely reading our minds, she said, here's the thing. What is shared here goes nowhere. This is not about perfect writing, not even about good writing. This is about writing, practicing writing, letting the hand go, see if the heart catches up, but don't hold back. What is shared here stays here. Have you ever been part of a group where maybe the, the facilitator or host says something like that at the outset of your gathering or gatherings? Uh, maybe it's in a recovery group. Maybe it's in a church kind of small group setting. Maybe it's been in a retreat setting. Maybe some of you have done counseling. It's one-on-one -on -one counseling or marriage counseling or premarital counseling or family counseling. And maybe somewhere right near the very beginning, the counselor says something like, all that is said here is confidential. It goes nowhere. And what is the effect on the room if everyone actually believes that these, these hard and fast boundaries exist to hold the space just so? And paradoxically, it can open the entire room, right? I mean, we are much more likely to say things that are quite vulnerable if we can trust the walls of that space. Things that touch at the core of who we are or who we regret having been or who we hope to be or who we believe God is calling us to be. I mean, within such boundaries, some of the most sacred things of life can be offered. Brene Brown, the author, the speaker, and professor at the University of Houston, she puts it this way, vulnerability, that space. Vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change. It is the space where we cultivate love. Vulnerability, which is to say this, this space where, where really we give up control because we believe it's going to be okay, that is the space where the real stuff grows. And as Christians, this is a deeply resonant idea for we follow a Savior who, who, right, who gave up everything. And so birthed resurrection, new resurrection life. Well, in this writing group, people did risk. They, they risked about writing uh, about their depression, about parenting angst, about eating disorder, about, about searing moments of joy, 
about profound hopes that scared them to even hope, about profound fears, about a recent diagnosis. And then we'd read our pieces aloud, the valley and valley. She would hear them, and, and, and she'd hear them with such grace and, and, and speak back to us the moment she really heard our voice starting to, to come through or come alive. And every time she affirmed something of those most tender moments we offered up, that made the space all the more sacred, the boundaries, boundaries all the more secure. We wrote all the more honestly in this open space, became all the more vulnerable, found new things growing within us. I signed up for more classes. My wife, Michelle, she signed up for some of the classes. Have you known Have you known the gift of that kind of space? Do you know the gift of that kind of sacred, vulnerable space? And what can grow therein? A hoopah. It's a wedding canopy. It's a prayer shawl held up by four sticks. And a traditional Jewish wedding takes place under this canopy with the understanding that God's mercy, protection, and and blessing is covering this couple as they exchange their vows. It is is a sacred space. Importantly, the whole community is, is understood to be part of what it takes to uphold these vows that are being made, help encourage and, and, and support them. Also importantly, It's only these two who are being married who are under the hopa. Not the couple plus a best friend, not the couple plus one of the mothers, not the couple plus this entire side of the family. Not that those folks aren't all important. In fact, again, they are vital to to the vows being held and lived. And at the same time, the hopa also makes clear that there is something about this unique and sacred boundary that frees this couple to cultivate love. Notably, in the ancient world, the couple wasn't understood to be married right when the legal document was exchanged. The act that made a couple married was the physical act of sex. What would happen after the legal document had been confirmed under the Hopa is that the wedding party would accompany this couple to the bridal chamber. They would affix a Hopa above the the bed, and and then they they would leave the couple to consummate their marriage. The, The physical oneness being a confirmation of, a sign of, an expression of the full oneness they are to to know at all levels, emotional, spiritual, physical. There's is a full nakedness before one another. There's is a full vulnerability before one another in this most sacred boundary. How are Adam and Eve described in the Garden of Eden? They were naked and not ashamed. There is an echo of Edenic openness and vulnerability given expression in that physical consummation, but, but, but understood to be real at, at all levels of the, this shared life. And, and actually, as powerful as that is to consider and what, what can grow therein from that kind of space, it, it goes beyond that. The central prayer of the Jewish faith Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Akkad is the Hebrew word for for one. Same word we hear in Genesis when we hear about the two shall become one. Akkad. In other words, the, the sexual union witnesses to, gives expression to, shows forth something 
about God's most fundamental self, utterly reconciled, complete oneness. And what a gift then to a broken and divided world when you have these little spaces all over the places where, where two shall become one at, at so many, such an intimate and, and level of being reconciled heart, mind, body, and soul between these people. What a witness, what a hope. And it's not, quite importantly, not just a witness and a hope for, for those who are married. I mean, goodness, the, the, the New Testament talks continually about the church being the bride of Jesus Christ. We have been made one with God and one another. We are held together in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the Greek word used to, to, to talk about the oneness we share as a people with God and one another, it is directly derivative from that Hebrew word echad. The point being that time and again in the New Testament, the New Testament understands all of God's people have, have, as having been made echad with one another. It is not a, a sexual term, but it is to say we are made one body. Such is the reality God has given us in Christ Jesus. We do share under the covenant with Jesus and one another. And, and then the Holy Spirit sets this hedge around us that we might live in a beautifully vulnerable, fat, confessional, and, and joyful community. That we might live in such a sacred kind of way and space in the way we, we, we work and, and live and talk with one another that, that transformation and love are, are cultivated because of what is kept among us. Us, that we might live in such a sacred space that we are loved precisely for who we are, seen for the gifts that we have, loved wherever we are and whatever mess we are in. What a profound gift such sacred space is to the soul, to the church, goodness, to the world. It's no wonder Jesus in John 17 in his really long prayer before going to the cross prays, oh, that they all might be a cod. But, have you ever said something in confidence? Perhaps in one of those groups that where everyone was supposed to keep it in there. Have you ever said something in confidence and then it got out? Someone shared, someone stepped outside of the chuppah with that. What does it do to a person? What's it do to the group? We use phrases like, now they have their guard up. Well, now they're, they're distant. Now there's a wall. When the boundary that makes for that sacred space is violated, all that is not God, not oneness, starts to become true, right? We're leaning further from one another. We build walls within. We get protective because the fear of another hurt is profound, and so now we are drawing quite close to some of the deep pain that is trying to be shielded against in the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. Do not betray the boundary that allows for such freedom, such vulnerability, such transformation, such sacred love to flourish. The pain of adultery is experienced in some ways at a most profound level in the way it shuts down the entire oneness space in which God is experienced and God is grows, God, where God lives and God is witnessed to. 
And, and when that happens, some, sometimes we, we, we use terms like, well, now they've, you know, they've split up. It's a broken home right now. Maybe one of them says, I've been shattered by the experience. Now I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to pick up the pieces because obviously it's not one. A traditional Jewish wedding has a moment where the groom will crush a piece of glass under his foot, under the chuppah. There are a variety of understandings of that particular moment. Maybe you've seen it at a Jewish wedding. But among them is that it serves as a sign to the, fragi- to the fragility of this sacred ekad reality. Break that thin boundary and, and, and the oneness can can go to pieces. And I'm confident that in ways small and in ways quite significant, in ways because of gossip or being taken for granted, as Guy pointed out, that in ways so painful, like a betrayal or an adultery, all of us have known the pain that occurs when, when, when the boundary that created that once sacred space is, is transgressed, is not honored, is, is, is forgotten, whether in marriage or in friendship or in church or, or any a number of ways. And many of us, I think, also know the, the pain of, of being the one who transgressed the boundary. In ways small or ways big, and, and so made it so another or others are distant, guarded, or, or even shattered. And what, I mean, what can be done once it's all a bunch of pieces? I mean, how, how can it ever be the same? The woman in John chapter 8 has been caught in the midst of adultery. An act that is right, breaking this foundational boundary that allows for the gift of, of oneness of God, all that sacred space. And then, quite famously, Jesus responds to this grievous, painful situation by telling all these religious leaders who surround her and wonder what kind of judgment that she's going to get. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And with that most famous line, it becomes clear, Jesus is not only looking to bring whatever kind of healing to, to this woman, we'll get there, but, but also and very much centrally to the whole community. In particular, he speaks to those in this religious community who for a moment suppose they're in the right and helping them see in humility their stuff. And one at a time, the older first And then the younger, they start walking away because the painful truth is every one of us has done our part in our marriages, our friendships, in our church. We have all done our part to break Echad somewhere, somehow. And the longer you've lived, perhaps the more clearly and readily you can track that. And so they were the first to step back. The great Russian author Dostoevsky writes in his brother's Karamazov through the words of Father Zosima as this father is speaking to other monks in this monastery setting where they live. Love God's people. For we, speaking of the monks, we're not holier than those in the world because we've come here and shut ourselves within these walls. But on the contrary, anyone who comes here by the very fact he's come already knows himself to be worse than all those in the world, worse than all of the earth, worse than all on earth. And he goes on, and when he, when a person knows that he is not 
only worse than all those in the world, but is also guilty before all people on behalf of all and for all and for all human sins, the world's and each person's, only then will our goal of unity be achieved. He goes on to say, this knowledge, this humble, profoundly humble knowledge Self-awareness is the crown of a monk's path and every man's path on earth. Father Zosima sees the world as so profoundly broken and also so profoundly interconnected and to such a degree that it's only when each of us sees both our common, our part in the common failings and our individually failings, only in this space where there is finally no finger pointing in any other direction except the self. that a space of unity and tears and new love can be birthed. Now, it may be that he paints too idealistic a picture this side of the fullness of heaven. But his wisdom points in the very same direction as Jesus. Chupa, restored in the community, means everyone confesses. The injured party and the injuring party. And then also those who think they really surely have nothing to do with whatever happened to those folks or those folks or those folks, and they start leaning in and wondering how they contributed to something of this atmosphere or the ways they they failed to be an encouragement to this couple, this situation, failed to be supportive in the vows. In fact, to that wonderful question, how do we keep our promises, I think honestly one of the best ways is to remain humble, always looking for the ways... We have a, a part in the failings. That, that humility allows us both to keep the vows and also renew them or begin renewing them when they are shattered. Along with that, there is, of course, this one other utterly critical thing to bringing about a oneness healed. Jesus ends this time before the woman caught in adultery and also famously says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Which is to say Jesus forgives her. Forgiveness is the heart's letting go of of this pain rightfully held against so-and-so. Forgiveness is profoundly unfair. And yet it sits right in the middle of Jesus' most foundational prayer that we offer every single week in worship. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's the glue. Forgiveness is, is the only way, honestly. You ever get to a moment where it's even possible where those four poles in that prayer shawl could be picked back up and, and some measure of sacred trust known afresh. Indeed, Forgiveness is the way Jesus has gone about reconciling us to God and to one another. Forgiveness founds and forms the very basis of the community in which we share. It is not too much to say that forgiveness is the grounds, the cover, and the substance of the community we share in with one another. Now, I do not want for an instant to diminish how hard this road is unto another experience of a cod where we've known hurt or betrayal. For marriages broken by uh, adultery or or church members deeply wounded by someone else in the church or clergy or or, or both or 
there really is no ready-made template with some kind of ready-made words and, and, and timeline. In some cases, it may take everything, it may take our entire life, and even so, we may only partially glimpse the fullness of this road. I mean, goodness, Jesus says we're to forgive 70 times 7 when asked how often we should forgive. And I think it's emblematic of just how ongoing and continual forgiveness must be, particularly because some wounds, they just run so deep when that boundary has been transgressed. I think of a, a decade or so ago counseling this, this couple where the wife had cheated on the husband about five or six years before they, they even met with me, and they were still married. And, and actually, to this day, they, they are married and, and, and doing well. Um, but he said at that time, I'll never forget it, he, he said, I wake up every day, and the first thing I've realized I need to do in order to be in a place to, to, to love is say quietly within myself, I forgive you. In some cases, there may be forgiveness, but that road may never lead to the full embrace of reconciliation. Just too much. Just too dangerous. Oh, and there's grace in that too. You know, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, he, he runs away from the father, does his level best to just run as far away from the possibilities of forgiveness as you can get, spends the inheritance, just crushes the sacred boundary of what it means to be family and goes as far out as you can get. Do you remember the father's response? He doesn't meander. The father runs to the son to have him back, to forgive him. He, he gives the prodigal son a robe, a ring, new sandals. He throws a party so big that honestly it looks a lot like a wedding feast would have looked like in that day. Which is to say the father gives as many tangible signs to make it clear that this son is back in the space, is back in the hopa, is back in the covenant. And that is everything. That is worth the party of parties. That is the sacred space of Echad. And the father will run oh, for that gift to be restored. Do you know the gift of that space this day? Or is there a person or people on your heart where if, <laughs> if some semblance of that most divine gift, that, that party, that joy is ever to be known again or glimpsed in a fresh way, the truth is it's going to take the road of forgiveness. Perhaps we're the religious leaders this morning in John chapter 8. So we, we recognize that we're not the ones overtly who painfully over and overtly failed another. But we maybe recognize that for healing to happen over there and over there or over here, we need to examine our part. Or maybe we are the one betrayed by the woman in the story, or betrayed by the man. And so we must consider what it is, or if we will, or if we even can offer ourselves slowly and surely unto this great unfairness. called forgiveness. Or we may be the woman herself who dares look up from our shame 
and the burden we carry for having walked across that boundary and we cast our glance upon that fearful horizon and what, what do you see? Do you see the Father running? Running to embrace and shower you with a love that declares Echad, oneness, the fullness of forgiveness, a new Eden. Let me add, whoever we are in this scenario this morning, it should be noted that a new Echad in, in marriage or friendship or a church community, it is never a return to simply what was. Jesus has visible scars on his body in resurrection. If the Holy Spirit opens of the miracle of a new chopah in, 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 in your life, in our lives, we should readily expect that the scars will remain and remain visible. Ever testimonies to the pain and testimonies to, to the ongoing healing. And yet, like Jesus in resurrection, what if the new space of oneness is actually stronger? I mean, the road to forgiveness, don't get me wrong, it costs everything. But we walk that road with a Savior who knows it well, who trod that road himself. And so regardless of whatever does or does not happen next in the step of faith that we take, his resurrection power is to be assured to be with us and in us and through us, even as he is praying actively for us that all might be one. Amen. Amen.